Hi, friends. Join us as we dive into the themes, metaphors, and foreshadowing of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. With both a spoiler and spoiler-free analysis, there's something here for everyone. We are your hosts, Leah, Sarah, Tabby, and whether you're a new viewer or a longtime fan, welcome to Becoming Buffy. Hi friends, Sarah here. Here on Becoming Buffy, we do our best to handle difficult issues with as much sensitivity as we can. However, sometimes it's impossible to discuss the episode without delving into these topics. The episode you're about to listen to, Helpless, is one that deals heavily with the topic of sexual assault and might be triggering for some listeners. Welcome back again, my fellow bros, to Bro Talk, where we talk about the most important subjects in life, the four Bs, beer, bros, beards, and babes. This week, we're going to be talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Hi, guys. Welcome back to Becoming... <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done. <laughs> hey, guys. Welcome back to Becoming Buffy. This is our brother, David. He was with us on Passion last year. <laughs> no, we're not going to be talking about bros. <laughs> I kind of want to start the Bro Talk podcast now. <laughs> it's, a, a, it's like fully just like... Only the the quote unquote like manly parts of Buffy. It's like literally the whole <laughs> podcast is just like the one beer episode in season four. <laughs> or in this one, you're like, I just really love how Zach the vampire is so three dimensional and his backstory. <laughs> <is so interesting. laughs> yeah, uh, I really like the fact that he's a man. <laughs> so you talk about only the male characters the entire time. Oh my gosh, that actually does not sound like a good no, podcast unless awful. you're doing it ironically. Because Honestly, it'd be a lot of the men are awful in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, they totally are. Which kind of leads into what I was going to say about how this episode focuses a lot on Giles and Buffy's relationship. And I was thinking a lot about it and I realized that Giles is literally the only good father figure or even like, I won't just say male because I think Oz is pretty great but mm -hmm. he's one of the yeah he's the only good father figure for all of the relationships mm -hmm. and all of the characters in Buffy like Xander obviously has a really bad relationship with his father and his mother too it seems like but we also have we have Joyce in here we've seen Willow's mom she's not a good representation of a of a good mom but we've had Jenny in here before we've had a couple of strong good female characters but when it comes in like mother figures but when it comes to father figures it's literally just giles and it's interesting too in this episode because this is the episode where giles like completely betrays buffy and crosses boundaries and you know really um doesn't act like a good father figure even though for most of the show he absolutely is so welcome to Becoming Buffy, guys. We're going to be talking about Helpless today, which I don't remember the last time I was so excited to talk about an episode, yep. not just because you're here, David. Um, for those of you don't, who don't remember, David is our brother, and he was with us in Passion, which you should definitely go back and listen to. That was a really good episode. But is there a specific reason why you chose this episode to talk about? Well, I, I do really like the um, dynamic between Buffy and Giles in this episode and the like betrayal of boundaries. Um, so that was really exciting to talk about. Um, and then just the like the core storyline with the crazy vampire and like him kidnapping Joyce and stuff like that. It's just I feel like there's a lot of meat to kind of uh, jump into. 
It definitely is like a top-notch episode all around. Like, this episode really shows a lot of what Buffy does best. Like, there's just amazing storytelling going on. Like, cinematography, music, like, wardrobe. It just, there really is very, very little about this episode that I think was done poorly. This is going to sound shady, but I feel like it showed the right amount of every character that I needed from this episode. I really like, uh, like the, the insecurity that Buffy gets into as well when she's dealing with like her loss of power and, you know, feeling helpless for the first time, probably in a couple of years. Uh, that's, that's interesting too. And I'll, I'll keep kind of those thoughts for when we go into that more, but um, that was part of why I also wanted to talk about this episode. I mean, there are horror aspects of Buffy, but this is like a horror esque episode. And I, love it i really wish they would utilize this um feeling or like pov in episodes like i just i am in love with this episode i love everything that they did i love every like avenue that they took advantage of in this episode i yeah i will say that buffy is like obviously it's a very campy show and they it does camp really well but when it leans in a little harder on the horror i feel like um, Joss Whedon's ability to kind of manipulate the audience's emotions really mm-hmm. shines well. Yeah, and I just want to give a shout out to the music, Christoph Beck, because I don't think this episode would be, I mean, obviously, we love every aspect. We've talked about how, you know, the acting is phenomenal, the writing, the dialogue, the set design, the lighting, but the music really adds just that extra layer. I think this episode would be great even without the music, but that music just leads it to a whole other level of terrifying. And I think this is some of Christoph Beck's best work so far. And I think so much of horror is made up by music and soundtracks because it creates that feeling of like anxiety or dread or whatever it is. Like I really feel like most good horror movies that you watch and the music work together to create the full picture. And so I think that they just really nailed it in this episode. And I'm so glad that Christoph Beck is finally kind of getting the credit that he deserves. I mean, he did phenomenal on Buffy, but he's kind of done like a few other things that people haven't really recognized. But now with him doing like WandaVision and a few of like the Marvel shows and um, even some of their films, I'm absolutely loving that people are starting to really recognize his brilliance and genius and how he's able to capture different sounds. Like everyone knows the WandaVision theme. Everybody can, I can tell you listening to, obviously I have listened to and watched Buffy a lot, but if I hear a specific motif and theme from Buffy, I know which scene, which episode it's from because every single one sounds different and you know where it's supposed to be placed. All right. So let's jump in. Helpless is written by David Fury, directed by James A. Cotner, and it aired January 19th, 1999. And canonically, January 19th is Buffy's birthday. So um, I think it was either Surprise or Innocence. I think it might have been Innocence. I don't remember. Um, that was aired on January 19th last year or like the year before. And then now this year, it's um, it's Helpless, which I kind of like that they do that. They're like following the calendar year. So the original episode title was just going to be 18. And that kind of gives you a little bit of a peek into what they were trying to go with. Like, oh, hey, she's 18 now. 
let's talk about what all that entails. And I think that's really important. Um, according to the commentary from Fury, like the DVD commentary, the original idea for this episode included Buffy being drugged by the council and hallucinating, imagining her friends and families as vampires. However, this was abandoned as it was too close to the premise of The Wish, and also Christine Sutherland couldn't stand the vampire makeup and just didn't want to be a vampire. But I think that would have also been very interesting. And in a lot of ways, like I'll talk about this later, but I see this episode as very, very, very similar to Nightmares in season one. Um, and it even kind of gives me Der Kinderstoff vibes from Killed by Death in season two. I feel like every single season of Buffy has that very horror-esque episode. And I think this is season three's horror episode. Um, I think it's probably the most well-written one. And it builds off of the foundation that Nightmares laid out. Like we would not be as invested in what's happening with Buffy and Giles, Buffy and her dad, and in Giles's head, if we did not understand their basic core motivations from Nightmares. That's true. That's a good point, Sarah. Uh, especially like having just recently watched Nightmares on a, uh, a rewatch, it kind of brings all that like together. And I was thinking of, I was actually thinking about Nightmares while I was watching this when she was um, like disappointed by her dad again. Yes. And you're like, yes. well, you know, kind of par for the course of this time, bro. Like you've been nothing yeah. but disappointment for Buffy the entire um, series so far. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to read this quote for you guys. It's actually really good. And it made, I don't know that I agree with everything, but it made me think about the episode in a slightly different light. So it says, even before Kralik appears, there's a looming presence of sexual violence and helpless that makes the crucimentum feel even more twisted. 18 is the age of consent in Buffy's home state of California. And in the episode's first scene, Angel and Buffy make it clear they aren't having sex after a purposely misleading, romantically mood-lit sparring session. In the next scene, Buffy fiddles with a phallic-looking crystal and says she has a lot of energy to burn and and in the one after that, a vamp lays atop her, turning a wooden stake at her face and saying, let me know if I'm not doing this right. Like most of Buffy the Vampire Slayer's metaphors about womanhood, this one is muddled yet still memorable. The overall impression is one of a warped rite of passage, a transition into womanhood that's corrupted not only by the hegemonic powers that be, but also by fallible father figures and the chaotic and violent men who make streets unsafe for women. Buffy Summers is remembered in our collective consciousness as a badass, demon slaying heroine. But this episode, for all its dark fairy tale gleam, serves as a wake up call for both her and the audience. And that's um, the deadly patriarchy of Buffy the Vampire Slayer um, from filmschoolrejects.com. But I thought that was really interesting. I honestly hadn't really thought about all of that subtext until I was kind of watching it. And I was like, oh my goodness, I think it's a commentary on how you turn 18 and all of a sudden it's your fair game, you know? Oh, um, that's, I'm so glad that you brought up, that up. I didn't necessarily see a lot of like the symbolism and like small things they put in there. And I think that's like the beauty of Buffy is like the more you rewatch it, the more you realize there's a lot of subtle things or like – um like background stuff or like small little metaphors, but I totally picked up on the vampire one where he like turns the stick yes. on her. Um, but I thought about that in this rewatch is just like turning 18 and then seeing the world and how nasty it can be. Because even in the episode where like her power is being taken away, which usually you feel like you get a little bit more power when you're 18. So it's like the subversion of it. Um, but then her like walking alone at night and then feeling vulnerable. And this is the first time she's been catcalled at night, which is mm -hmm. ironic when she doesn't have her power. 
I was going to bring, so I wrote down the catcalling thing and we can bring that up later. We can talk about it now, but like, that's a super aggressive catcall. Maybe I'm a guy, so I don't like get that. So maybe you guys can tell me, but like, are guys normally that like brazen about catcalling? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when I when I well, lived in Lancaster, which <laughs> yes. anyone who knows Lancaster in California, every single time I was at a gas station, I would get catcalled, and some to that degree, some maybe a little less, and then some maybe just a whistle. But like, it's usually not that aggressive all the time. But a like, hey there, hey little lady, is like very common. But it's like the later it gets. And the more alcohol and the bigger the group, the the more bold yeah. the declaration. More men, more bold. Yep. Yep. If it's just yeah. one, it's mm-hmm. usually just a random comment if you're walking to buy something inside. But if it's like more guys, the more aggressive they get. It's so annoying. Maybe this is just my male ignorance talking. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> pretty gross. I think it also depends where you're at. Some places are safer than others. Some people, there's this, um, oh, I would never, some guys be like, oh, I would never cat call a girl, but they have no problem with microaggressions. And so like there's varying levels of how overt people are and how aggressive they are. And then, you know, there's other people who like would probably cat call, but that's as far as it would get, but would never think about actually sexually assaulting someone. And you'd have someone who'd be like, I would never cat call, but they'd have no problem something else happening, you know, in private or whatever. So I think like there's varying levels of it and every girl has her own story. All that being said, yes, guys are that that direct and that aggressive. (laughs) And I think it's also the fact that a lot of times grosser people are able to pick up on when someone feels uncomfortable or when they seem weaker. And so if Buffy's walking down the street, normal Buffy, guys are still going to say stuff because they're gross. But some guys might avoid it because Buffy-like might have the confidence to be able to handle herself. However, sometimes when someone is more in their shell and things like that, it's like a psychological thing like, creepy guys will be like, oh, she's not going to talk back. She's not going to say anything because she doesn't look like she can quote unquote handle herself. Not that either is your fault, but just people take it that way. And so I think it's also supposed to be the fact that Buffy is making herself small to try and not be seen. But a lot of times creepy people pick up on that. And so they see you as an easy target. I was going to say that too, Leah. I wrote that down, like her posture in that scene, like she's She's got her arms over her chest and she's like holding her, her coat closed and she's um, kind of hunching over. So she's definitely trying to make herself a little bit smaller and a little bit more like innocuous and not noticeable and things like that, which to your point, Leah, just kind of makes you seem weaker and more of a target. Whereas Buffy normally walks around, you know, with swagger and confidence and because uh, she knows she can handle herself. I remember Emma Watson talking about how the day she turned 18, paparazzi started trying to take pictures up her skirt. It was literally, David, it was her her 18th birthday party. Mm -hmm. And she's walking out and they were trying Mm -hmm. to get under her skirt and take pictures. They did. And they, put and it on they the did. Cover and it was going in like tabloids and online and all this stuff. And mm-hmm. she, she said that if they had published that the day before, that like they could have lost their jobs. They could have like, because she did child pornography, but because she's legal, everything was passed. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And there's this helplessness that kind of comes with this specific type of assault. All assault is bad. Um, 
But the worst part is that this type of assault is often sometimes deemed socially acceptable and societally acceptable. And I think that's something that this episode is trying to talk about in a very subtle way. The fact that the Watcher's Council takes away Buffy's power without her consent um, and allows her to be preyed on as a helpless victim and like they're the perpetrators of this. It's just really like the symbolism is really sad. And I think that the episode is trying to tell us that as a society, we have to do better and we have to recognize that there are things that we are like, oh, well, that's just like the whole Me Too movement I think has been huge in this is the idea of like we we talk about it. We don't just hush, hush and blow it under the rug and say, oh, this happens to everybody. No, like we say this is not okay and we keep going. And I think that's – I love that Buffy is kind of showing that, hey, the Watcher's Council that Giles is a part of and Giles is even complicit in and for half of this episode needs to be called out because you have good people like Giles who don't even realize what they're doing is wrong or they do realize what they're doing is wrong and they're like, well, this is my job or this is what's best or it's for the greater good. And so I think making Giles the perpetrator and kind of a willing or maybe unwilling he's complicit at least in this, is an incredibly bold move. And they could have lost the character if Tony Head and the writing Mm -hmm. wasn't so good. I will absolutely do my best to defend Giles' character because I love Giles and I think he's such an amazing character. But I will say, in this episode, Giles is not a complicit victim. He, yes, he felt guilty about what he was doing and he ends up in the end making the right decision. But he willfully chooses to be the 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 hand to act out the council's mm-hmm. will. And yes, yeah. you know, it is you can give him some slack because it's years of like manipulation and training and like just awful ideals indoctrinated into him. But it's also that metaphor of like just because, you know, a guy generalizing just because a guy has been taught for years like hey it's okay to treat women like this it's okay to treat women like this blah blah blah, doesn't mean they get a pass on treating women poorly like you are still responsible for your conscience for your actions for all of that and so as much as i love giles he is not a victim he's not a victim no yeah so i wanted to talk a little bit about red little red riding hood because I think that's a huge, huge parallel in this episode. And I always love, like we did this with Beauty and the Beast. I love looking into the fairy tale aspect of it because I think there's a there's a reason they decided to do this in this episode. So the overt symbolism of Little Red Riding Hood, including Buffy actually wearing a red coat, is fascinating, ties into this whole sexual assault um, and predator aspect. The story can actually be traced back to over a thousand years ago. Um, and as we've discussed before, fairy tales are often used and were often used as a way to teach children morality. There are two main versions of the story, the Brothers Grimm version and Pearl's. In Pearl's story, there is no hunter. The girl takes off her clothes and actually gets into bed with the wolf. And the story ends with her being eaten by the wolf. What the heck? She takes yeah. off her clothes and gets... Mm-hmm. Who wrote that? For children to read. Was she? Did she still think her grandma was in bed? <laughs> there's, there's no silver lining for silver red, uh, for red riding it in this story. It's either her grandma or a wolf. Oh, there's no even, still, even she thinks it's her grandma. Why is she still taking off clothes? Well, and exactly, going, it's, bed with her? it's still weird. Too much is happening. Too much. <laughs> uh, you you should go read it on your own because I yeah not touching that with a ten foot pole. Um, 
But it's interesting because the hood is a head covering. And in a lot of cultures, a head covering holds a lot of weight and symbolism. Well, it's also a modesty thing. Yes. For adult women. It's a modesty thing. It's virtue. It's a chastity sometimes thing. It's a thing where like only my husband sees it. Like there's a lot of symbolism in the act of her having a cloak, a head covering. Um, In Peralt's story, he actually added that it was red. Before Peralt had it, it, in the the very different variations, the cloak was multiple different colors. Sometimes it was gold, which gold is um, a symbolism of maturity. But Peralt added red because red often symbolizes sin. Kind of we think of the scarlet letter. And so his story, he was trying to make it seem as though she was a harlot. She was somebody that was a she was a lo- woman of loose morals. So it's a very, very different way of looking at it versus Brothers Grimm. So therefore she deserves it. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, that, that's Everyone's what like slut shaming Red about. Riding Hood. Yeah, exactly. She was wearing red when a harlot. (laughs) Well, Perrault was writing this in this, I think it was the 17th century. Not trying to excuse him at all. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Actually, uh, I watched The Last Duel last night, um, which I don't know if you guys have heard of it or not, Mm -hmm. but basically it's a medieval story with Matt Damon, Adam Driver, and I I forget the the female lead. But where Adam Driver's character basically rapes Matt Damon's wife and she accuses him publicly. And there, oh my gosh, there's a, like a trial scene where the, I don't know, the council, the clergy are like, well, you're pregnant. And as science knows, you can't get pregnant by rape. And as science also knows, Ooh, you have to have I've an orgasm that. at the same time as your husband to get pregnant. So <laughs> you must have enjoyed it. And basically, uh, it wasn't rape. And I was like, oh my gosh. No, like guys. I know that those things happen, but like I'm glad that I do not live back then. And I told Catherine that she didn't watch it with me. But I told my wife, yeah. I was like, Yeah, I'm glad you didn't live back then. Cause that would have yeah. been horrible. Well, also I will say that's awful. <laughs> but that kind I've of thinking is still very much alive. Mm-hmm. I had um a teacher in high school. I won't name him. <laughs> I had mm-hmm. a teacher in high school who told one of the classes that my friend was in that uh, the woman's body has "quote unquote" ways of protecting itself from getting pregnant during rape because what? the body can, oh. the body will adjust and protect itself. Oh. He guys, guys, he taught my health class. Oh my gosh! Oh, yeah. I know him. That is horrifying. Yeah, you know him. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think he got fired actually. So no, yeah. he didn't. Did he He's, not? He still teaches there. Mm. This is why education is so important. There is such a huge lack of people understanding how women's bodies work. For some reason, we know a lot about how guys' bodies work. But but when it comes to women's bodies, they, we, we, we have not studied the female sex organ as much as we have in the, the men's. You know, it's crazy, but um, I can count like at least six or seven of my adult friends that didn't know that the vaginal opening and the urethra were two separate holes like people thought that girls yeah. peed out of their vagina which i know this is like getting graphic but like i, know, I don't know serious? how we got you guys are like <laughs> this really is health talks man oh, welcome to no, talks where we talk about the yeah, woman's exactly. vagina <laughs> and how to please a woman <laughs> the lesson no, number one true. women have more than one hole <laughs> No, but that's a huge common misconception. People don't know these things. And yeah, that's a huge problem. Anyway, okay, back to Red Riding Hood. Woo. 
way, way off the beaten track. We're, we're deep in the woods here. Speaking of woods, excellent transition, Sarah. Um, going into the forest is actually a representation of going into the unknown, of a place of transformation and change. We've talked about this before. I think it was, is that the movie? I think it's called The Green Knight. Is that, that's the one that just came out. Is it called The Green Knight? Okay. Yeah, The Green Knight. Um, I, yeah, there's, I don't want to spoil the movie, but there's a huge moment where the character goes into a forest and it's a literal transition and change of the movie. Um, and that's very, very common in fairy tales. Like you have, you know, even Taylor Swift into the woods, that's supposed to be a symbolism of change and stuff. Tab's like, Taylor out of the Swift. woods. <laughs> but in the music video, oh, she goes out of the woods. into the woods. So. Into the woods. You're right. You're Thank both you. right. Of our relationship. Yeah. Sorry, Tay Tay. I'm I need mean, I'll do better. She literally says um, it 50 times song. Are we out of the She does, yet? you're right. My bad. Like <laughs> yeah. 70 times. I was thinking of the I was thinking of the the play into the, the woods movie? and then yeah. Taylor Swift. But like the idea is that all these fairy tale characters go into the woods and there's change and it happens. And if you're gonna psychoanalyze it all too, um, a lot of psychologists and stuff see the forest as a metaphor and re- a representation of female sexuality as well, which is why so many of these female fairy tale characters go into the woods and things happen to them, <laughs> you know, getting kissed without consent and all that stuff. And uh, all these heroes and heroines come out of the forest having learned lessons and are typically more responsible or they get eaten, but they learn a lesson in being eaten too. So, you know, I guess the metaphor <laughs> works. The difference is uh, the lesson they, you yeah. oh, I hate this. This is horrible. <laughs> what's the lesson you, you learned by getting eaten? You're a eaten, so therefore you deserve to die. Sarah's transition was literally like, oh, you either learn a lesson or you get eaten. It's like, oh my gosh, bro. If I ever find myself in a forest, I'm going to try my very best to learn a lesson because I'm not trying to get eaten. <laughs> no, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to follow Peralt's logic, which is a little twisted. It's taken a couple of turns. But I think it's also interesting, too, within the Buffyverse, like, they've talked many times, we talked about this in The Wish, how bright colors attract vampires. And so I think it's so interesting that Buffy's got this red coat and then Krolik holds it like, you know, when he's chasing her down the alleyway and stuff too. Um, but it, I think something else that's really interesting is that in both versions of the story or in all versions of the story, Little Red Riding Hood's father is absent. He's not even a part of the conversation. So canonically, uh, Red Riding Hood has daddy issues. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes. Um, but like you have her mother saying, hey, stay out of the forest. Or if you do go, don't talk to strangers. And then you have the grandmother, but you don't have little red's father um in Grimm's story the role of the father is played by the huntsman who finds and saves both the girl and the grandmother defeats the beast and does what every good father would do he protects and he serves in peralt's version the other explanation it's slightly more complicated because the father of red is split into two characters or like the ID of her father. You have the first is the good, protective, civilized and already known huntsman. The second is the more primitive, brutal and dangerous which is the beast or the wolf. And so there's like, it's kind of giving two sides of, man, you could have the dangerous and then you could have the good protective. Um, and so this um, this site, it's allocation.com slash humanities. They're talking about how in both stories, the father figure, it's possible he's not just missing, but he's actually in disguise. You kind of have to hunt for him and look for him a little bit. But either way, I think that it's really interesting to look at specifically Giles in this story. Um, and the Watchers Council and looking at Little Red Riding Hood and being like, okay, what were the writers trying to tell us in this episode? I don't know. It's really, really interesting. And I mean, I feel like I could do a, a much deeper dive onto Little Red Riding Hood and I kind of want to, but 
yeah, it's just, I don't know. I find that stuff like super, super fascinating. hundred percent. I agree. And honestly, there's, there's a lot to be said about like the, um, the role that fairy tales play in our like cultural zeitgeist because they establish mm-hmm. myth and they establish mm-hmm. lore to, um, I guess like rich in the experience of like growing up and, um, in some ways, actually in a lot of ways, things like TV shows have replaced uh, your traditional fairy tales yeah, in that sense. Right. So Buffy becomes that for all these young girls watching it like you, Sarah, mm-hmm. where you're coming of age, where now you're learning these these lessons without having to go through them. Whereas back mm-hmm. in the day, they would learn those lessons without having to go through them by, I guess, living vicariously through, you know, Little Red Riding Hood. But you can do that yeah. while watching it and it's much more visceral on the screen. Yeah, which is I think everybody loves stories. We learn the best when we're being shown a story that we're emotionally invested in and that's why television and media is so powerful and that's why I think Buffy is so powerful is they're taking stories and things that we've been taught growing up and saying, okay, well, let's look at this in a little bit of a different angle and let's see if this actually holds up. Is what society has been telling you or whoever, your authority figures, is it right? Is it correct? Let's examine it from all angles. And I love how they they even give Giles, like, and we'll talk about this later, but they talk about Giles who's clearly doing something wrong. They give him like maybe noble reasons for doing it, even if what he's doing is wrong. And so I think that that creates a more layered and a a more um, a mature way of looking at things. You can say this is wrong, but why? Why is it wrong, and why are they doing it like this? You know. So yeah, I absolutely love this episode. All right, so welcome to Helpless, my personal second favorite of the season. Um, it opens up, and okay, this opening scene with Buffy and Angel is so cute. But I also want to bring up the fact that. What I appreciate so far about season three is that they have like an episode like Revelations where everyone was kind of like down Buffy's throat about being around each other because they were worried that he was going to turn to Angelus. And I really appreciate that you can tell that they're being really cautious, especially in this like scene. There's that whole like, you know, like satisfaction conversation. Um, But even like the whole like him being like, oh, like you have like a date, like you can tell that they're like not – jumping into things like obviously they care about each other and they like each other and they're hanging out with each other but they're not like oh we're boyfriend and girlfriend it's like they're taking things slow and it's been episodes after revelation i think it's also good for us as viewers as well because this is the year mark of them having sex for the first time and everything going down and so i Mm -hmm. like that they're addressing it like even with the gift he gives her later on like he's like hey you liked that arm i gave you last year you know like they're talking they know what day it is they know what the significance is and they're also being like you said tabby being careful i was laughing at that scene too because uh david boreanis is all like sweaty and glistening (laughs) and she is like perfectly made up and everything Not sweaty at all. I'm like, you guys had this like giant tumble fight and her hair is like perfect and he's all tussled and like, you know, not naturally oily to show off his muscles. I like it because it's like subtle feminism. It's like he had to work really hard and they're tussling and she's like not even broke a sweat. It's also hilarious (laughs) because once again, there has to be someone that has to oil down David Boreanaz in all of these, these episodes. And I just want to know who it was. Who was the person that was okay. like, yeah, I had to oil I think down. it's pretty. I think it's pretty safe for me to say that he's been shirtless in every episode of season three. 
Am I correct for saying that? I really feel like every yes. single we've mentioned it in every episode. Oh, you're shirtless again. Yeah, <laughs> he has. I think this is the first episode he's not shirtless. Oh, is yeah. he? Yeah, not he, when he's wearing the tank top, but he's not shirtless. Yeah, I mean, his his arms are bare. The important parts. No, that's not true. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever was responsible for oiling him up, uh, please come on the podcast because we all want to talk to you. <laughs> we want to know what was it like. <laughs> uh, Buffy mentioned seeing her dad for the ice show. I will say something that's interesting to me is how Buffy kind of changes the story on who she's talking to. Um, mm. Like when she's talking to Angel, not changes the story, but changes her enthusiasm level. Like when she's talking to... Angel, you can tell she's so excited. She's like very vulnerable in like presenting it. And then when she's um kind of talking to uh, Willow and Xander later on, she's still excited, but you can tell she's underplaying it. She's like, oh, you know, it's just like a girly thing, but I love to do it with my dad, blah, blah, blah. And then like when she's talking to her mom after he cancels, she's like, oh, it's not a big deal because she's just like trying to protect her own feelings, I think. And it's just very interesting to see that the person she's the most vulnerable with is Angel. I think that's one of the best things about being in a relationship is that you can be like goofy and silly and a little bit childish with each other and know that they're not going to um, like look down on you for it. You know, like if you guys are just like busting up belly laughing over something stupid that happened, you know, they're not going to like shame you for it. You know, and, and that's one of the most freeing and like wonderful things about being in a caring relationship is that they see you when you're the most immature, the most childish, the most vulnerable, and they like they still love you, you know, even despite or through all that. And sometimes because of all that. Yeah. And it's really refreshing to see Buffy and Angel finally in this place because Angel's been really tortured this season. And it's been nice to see just a, even in Gingerbread, a very like a way more relaxed, laid back version of himself because he's kind of had to wrestle with his demons and amends. And he's at a place now where he's like, I know who I am. I know what my purpose is. And like he's because Buffy was there for him. And so I think this is probably the healthiest their relationship has ever been in the show. I think it's kind of intelligent too to have that sort of like like um, comfortable conversation and then her talking about seeing her actual father and then going straight into the yes. library scene now knowing what happens in the episode you can see that the big crystal that he puts on right before the exit the library scene the big crystal that she's focusing on is the one that is supposed to hypnotize her so without like we know now as a second rewatch but the first time you're rewatching it, it's like oh she's having a normal conversation he's teaching her to like somehow for some reason look at these crystals and know which one is which that we've never Stupid. seen before okay i know <laughs> If I were Buffy, I'd be like, and why? Yeah. Um, but like re-watching it, you're like talking about like having the comfort, like her seeing her dad after a long period of time and then seeing her actual father figure, but then now knowing that he is betraying her in that moment. Yes. So it's really interesting. Well, and they they show a pattern of him doing the crystals. Mm -hmm. And I think I noticed this too, not on this scene, but the next scene when you actually have the needle and all that stuff, they mm -hmm. put Buffy in the exact same position. Buffy and Giles, they're staged in the same place that they will be at the very end of the episode um, when Travers is there, but also where Buffy finds out that he betrays her. And it's mm -hmm. just from a different angle. So they have it really up close, really intimate. They also have it really close and intimate with the needle. But then they flip it when she finds out and Giles is standing somewhere else, but she's still sitting in the same spot. And then with Travers, 
the exact same happen- thing happens and the scene ends with him, you know, dabbing her forward, that really tender scene, that's the exact same place he betrayed her as well. So I think there's like a very cool like staging thing where they're trying to show that like, yes, he did these things, but Buffy ultimately forgives him and they move on from there. Oh. So we don't have to talk about the rest of the episode then. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I'm like, I just introduced like this I'm so person. sorry. Good. <laughs> good. I made a note um, in the, the next scene when the, she's fighting the vampire. Um, the stunt work has gotten a lot better in this season because um, I'm still kind of in season two uh, with my rewatch right now. And um, you can definitely tell that like the fight scenes are really good. And when the vampire throws Buffy across the picnic table, like the stunt work in general has just gotten quite a bit better. They've gotten a little bit better about hiding the stunt doubles. <laughs> I feel like the stunts in every season, and I don't know if they do this on purpose, but it's like even just looking at specific fights in each season, it represents where Buffy's at in her life. And my personal like fighting style is season three and season five. And they're very different. Every season is very different the way she fights depending on her experience. And season three is one of my personal favorites because she's a lot more confident in who she is because she's had that whole epiphany moment at the end of season two. Also, when it comes to like wardrobe with certain patrolling, I really find it interesting that this is one of the first ones we've seen her in athleisure. And she has French braids in her hair. It's a little bit more relaxed and like confident, which I feel like is a good representation because then her powers are taken away in that moment. Well, I I like that you brought up the braids. I'm sorry. I know we're like nitpicking on so many different things, but this episode, I'm finding that they did everything. I mean, they do everything intentionally in Buffy, but this episode in particular, there are specific Mm -hmm. reasons and choices for why they do things. And the braids, like you said, is very youthful, but do you guys remember where else we have seen Buffy in braids? I was about Sarah. You keep sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Say it. I was was going to ask. I was like, do you guys know what other episodes there's only two episodes and one of them we haven't gotten yet the freshman uh no there's actually more than two episodes but go ahead there's but what was the other one you were thinking of because mine's a freshman well the freshman but there's um i know we're saying episode titles that we haven't gone before but i don't think that's spoilers there's also fool for love she wears braids there too oh really in um the season four Halloween episode, do you remember who she dresses up as? Oh, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's an episode. Sorry, that's all like mild spoilers. There's an episode we have seen before where she's worn braids. Do you remember what that episode is? Ted. No. No, not Ted. Oh yeah, it's nightmares, nightmares. isn't it, Sarah? Yeah, oh. it's nightmares. Oh. Huh. And the, the whole like the vamp using her power against her with the stake and stuff like that. Um. It's, She's supposed it's, to look there's a reason for it. They're trying to show like a vulnerability, but I think they're also mm-hmm. going, hey, nightmares, we're talking about her issues with her dad. Like it's kind of a callback to that. Buffy doesn't wear braids a lot. Well, I was about to say, I think it's her hair in general is very purposeful. Buffy's hair mm-hmm. just in general. I, like if you're going to rewatch the show, look at her wardrobe, look at her hair. Like um, especially in this episode, we have the double braids and we have the overalls of pain. So there's there and the red tell you something. The, the red coat, the red and jacket, the red and the coat. red shirt. Yeah. Yes, but oh, and and when she's running and he takes her jacket, mm-hmm. she's wearing like a real like filmy white yep. shirt, yes. and she's in heels, and it's very like it's a trope in yeah. horror is for like the final innocent girl to have to wear all white because in horror movies, if they ever like cut them the blood can show really well with white. One of the beauties of Buffy, and I think feel like I say this constantly, but the the fact that they have so many tiny little callbacks to episodes be, 
before, like previously, it creates this feeling of a whole universe where like, I feel like these characters are real. That's something that Joss Whedon does really well is like blending continuity through. So you feel like you're watching uh, like an entire story. And even when Buffy becomes really episodic, because it can be episodic, Mm -hmm. there's still um, like a, a theme and threads that run through the whole thing. So it feels very connected to the rest of the story, even in episodes where there's nothing really happening to further the overall plot. It still feels super connected to the rest of the series. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still relevant too, because there's Mm -hmm. a whole arc that they're building on and there's, you know, themes like this one is choices and even authority we've talked about. And so like Buffy having to recognize that her authority figure, her father figure is going to let her down both her actual father and her metaphorical father. Um, and then we have that whole interaction where the vampires kind of being like, "Am I? Tell me if I'm not doing this right." And then I love how she headbutts him, and then as he's trying to attack her again, she doesn't really do much because she's like weak. She just kind of holds up the stick, and he gets staked by that, which is a direct correlation to the first time she ever staked a vampire. That's exactly how she staked him in becoming part one. It's a vulnerable position for sure because you don't you don't know your power at that point. So you're just utilizing a position. Their own strength you. against mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In the script, Travers was supposed to be in this scene and was watching her from the shadows. So when he's revealed in the boarding house later on, you're supposed to already be like, ooh, he's creepy. He's a villain. But for some reason, they cut that out. I don't know why. I feel like it's pretty – like you find out in the next scene that he's like – part of the watcher's council and i feel like the way that it's set up and stuff it kind of already makes sense i feel like it's almost cooler in the first scene where you don't really know what's going on and you see them like boarding up the house and stuff and you're like what is going on like that's kind of cool yeah i agree leah like having that like kind of intrigue where you're like who are these people what is their connection to buffy what do they have planned for her and why are they boarding up this house you know you, you have a bunch of questions and even just like seeing him uh, in the scene prior, then one question would be removed. And that would be like who who that guy is. Just having this like overload of questions all at once leads to like a very confused scene. I, I yeah. kind of like that. And I will say the way that this episode is like kind of filmed or whatever, you really don't know the direction of the episode for half of it. And not in a bad way of like, oh, this episode doesn't know where it's going. Even with Giles, the way that it's point like painted in the first half of the episode, like you're kind of like, is Giles like a villain? Like you're like, yeah. is Giles like has Giles been lying to Buffy this whole drips. time? And like it's just it's very interesting. Like the way that I was watching it, even like uh, the first time after you see him like uh inject her, which I mean I fast forwarded that, but like um his his like face and the camera angle and the music kind of makes it look like evil mm-hmm. like he's almost enjoying it and stuff which you know he's not but it's just the way that it's filmed in the beginning is it's so interesting because you're just like what is going on and you know it's interesting uh part of that too is like because this episode is about buffy turning 18 and when you turn 18 your parents kind of stop uh parenting you so much and then then they start um, putting more responsibility on you and when you're freshly an, a new adult all that responsibility kind of all at once is super overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Like all of a sudden now you need insurance on your own. You need to register to vote. You need to like maybe pay for your own car. You need to get a job. You Like there's a ton of adult things that are all like shoved on you at once. 
and it may feel like your parents are, um, you know, being vindictive a little bit, but you know, that's just a byproduct of being an adult. Um, so I, I, I kind of liked, at least that's what I got from this a little bit too, where, um, you know, all these people that Buffy is trusting or is, are in, you know, positions of power over her are like directly abusing that power. Um, even if they're doing it for her own good mm. at the time. Yeah. That's and that's point. something that like is a theme for this season so far too, is like the negative side of authoritarian uh, power authority. Like, Cause we have the mayor who's evil and he's directly using the people in his community for bad reasons. And so then we're like, okay, let's discuss Giles's authority now, which I think is really, really interesting. One thing before we get to there, um, I really liked the way that, um, what's the act, who's the actress that plays Joyce? Christine Sutherland. I liked the way that she played um, the character when Buffy gets the letter from her dad. Um, you can really see the hurt in her eyes. Um, and the, I mean, you know, you feel for Joyce because this was her husband and she's probably experienced, you know, failure from him and their relationship where he probably didn't show up for her and he wasn't there for her. So you can, you can feel that hurt doubled where now she's feeling hurt from him probably in the past, but also feeling hurt for Buffy yeah. because she knew that that was important to Buffy mm-hmm. and she's angry at him, but more so just like sad that Buffy doesn't get to do this. And I felt like that was all really well portrayed in, in the acting in that scene. Well, Also, but like, Oh my gosh, what, what a, wonderful parenting response to instead of focus on like instead of like being angry and pointing him in a like awful light and being like he always does this This, he was such a terrible husband that's why we divorced blah 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 which is what a lot of divorced parents go through instead she focuses on like let's not even dwell on it and just be like Buffy I can take you like I'll I'll, I'll, if this is important to you I'll be there for you like that is an amazing Mm -hmm. amazing parent response Mm -hmm. 100%. 100%. And he's a terrible father to Buffy. But I think it's because she already knows how Buffy feels. And so she just wants to do her best to not completely ruin Buffy's image of the dad. And I also just think that it's one of those things where Buffy doesn't want Joyce to be like to see that Buffy's hurt because she knows that that'll hurt Joyce. And so it's beautiful that they're both protecting each other. It's just, a, it's like, it's a sad scene, but this is one of those scenes but that I will point to and show people like, no, Joyce is a good mom. Like you take away all the times that she's like, <laughs> her brain is like taken over by spirits magic and all that stuff. Like, and, yeah. yeah, or magic <laughs> cookies or Ted or whatever. Like Joyce above it all is a good mom and she is always there for Buffy. It's interesting, Leah, that you brought up that Buffy's trying to protect Joyce because you see that happen a lot with kids who are brought up in like traumatic environments, um, especially when, you know, uh, the parent has suffered some loss or some trauma where kids have to grow up too fast and then they start protecting their parents. They're protecting their parents' emotions by not um, fully expressing theirs. You know, Buffy's probably really mad at her dad and really disappointed and sad, but she knows that um, that's only going to hurt her mom if she expresses all that hurt uh, the way that she probably wants to. Um, So it's just interesting where you, you you know, you start seeing these kids uh, almost take on a parental protectory role for their their 
I guess, damaged parents in those households. This episode is so important because the episode right before this is gingerbread. And that's the episode that I will arguably say paints Joyce in the worst light that we've seen her so far. Um, And she is obviously underneath a spell at that point, but it makes it sometimes very difficult to go, okay, who actually is the good Joyce underneath all that? Who is the real Joyce? But I think that the sensitivity understanding that Joyce approached this with is admirable. I mean, again, we've talked about how Joyce could be better written. She's a plot device, but I think deep down she's a phenomenal mom. Um, But, okay, the transition between this and then, like, the whole old boarding house with the music, I kind of like what David was saying earlier, the way that they disguise a lot of this episode, and I like that they didn't show anything. It was just, like, this weird, like, music, and then you see, like, the – Quentin or whatever his name is from the Watchers Council. He's like walking in and then you hear a screaming from a cage box. And then he just says, the Slayer's preparation is nearly complete. And that's our first introduction. I feel like that is like a perfect scene because you're like, I was very intrigued and I've seen this episode bajillion times. I was like, every time I'm always like so intrigued by their introduction of everything. I think the use of it being a boarding house, because for a long time I was sitting there, I was like, why did they choose a boarding house? What is so significant about this? And I think I figured it out. It's psycho. Mm -hmm. It's the whole, he has mommy issues and he's crazy. Interesting. That's also a trope in horror though, is having mommy issues. That's why most of them, most of like the famous like Jason and uh, Michael Myers like and uh, whatever the dude's name is from Psycho, all of them have mommy issues and or the mom was the first villain because it shaped them as children who have major, major trauma from parental figures, mostly right. moms. Right. And no, I definitely. totally agree. It was funny though. I, I wrote this down when he was talking about having mommy issues. Like we love a self-aware evil vampire. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. He's like, I know that. <laughs> but they gave this guy like a backstory. And they actually like uh-huh. you he's not just evil because he's evil. Like he's one of the best like one-off villains, really, ever. Yes. This is what okay. This is why it's such a good one-off episode because the villain isn't just like thrown in there just to show a metaphor. Like, I mean, he is, but he's like a bit three-dimensional as well, which we usually don't get in like a episodic episode. They really you did the most with his epi- with his character. They did. And the actor does a phenomenal job. Oh, yeah. He's so scary. Too, too well. Yes. I, I, I will say though, I have to say, the actor is not ruined for me because he's in this episode and he's in a really creepy landlord episode, A New Girl, in the first season. And I, I, I cannot look at him. <laughs> Really? <laughs> it's just creepy voice to him like, y'all, if I ever meet you, like you are not a good person to me. You're just creepy. <laughs> Ugh. This library scene hurts my feelings. <laughs> Buffy comes in and she's like, like he's bringing out the crystals, telling her to focus. And every attempt that oh she does gosh. to like have an emotional connection or like drop anvils of hints of like trying to get him to take her to the eye show, she says, and I quote, um, a lot of sophisticated people go. She's trying to throw every argument at him. And she says, it's usually something families do together. If someone were free, they'd take their daughters or their student. And then she says, or their slayer as he's talking. I'm like, oh. They cut out a couple of lines, but one of the lines that they they switched out. So in the in the scene, it's it's usually something that families do together. But in the script, it says, it's the kind of thing fathers do with their daughters. Oh, Oh, that would have hurt me more. And you know, it's interesting because uh, Giles is 
because of what he's doing and because he's feeling bad about it, yeah. he's intentionally emotionally distancing himself, which yep. is like if if you're if you've ever done something that you know hurts a significant other or a family member or someone you're close to, like you don't want to be close to them emotionally at that point yeah. because it you know that uh, it's only going to make what you're doing feel that much worse. Yeah, you know, so it's interesting that he probably was listening and I'm sure Giles probably would want to take her to it. Yeah. But there's no way that Giles is going to like compound the, um, I guess, negative feelings he's feeling uh, while he's forcing himself to do this, I guess. It's also important to note too, like obviously what Giles is doing is not okay. So I'm not trying to justify it, but he does try to help her as much as he feels like he can. Like there's um, in the whole episode before when she's throwing the knives, he says, perhaps you should take it easy for the next 48 hours, forego any more patrolling until you're filling yourself again. So as much as he's able to, he's still trying to protect her, even though like Obviously, he couldn't be drugging her, but we have to understand Giles' motivations. Like back in um, uh, Never Kill a Boy in the First Date, Giles tells Buffy, like, he has been groomed to be a watcher for generations now. Like, again, not trying to excuse it, but I think it's important to get into Giles's head and recognize that he's doing this because he thinks this is the best thing for Buffy, which is ultimately like his downfall because, like, that's not up to him, that's up to Buffy. But he is genuinely doing this out of, care for her not because he has evil intent well okay and i know that we say this every episode but my favorite part or favorite aspect of watching buffy is like the undertones of what people normally go through and then what the show is showing us in the fantastical world and so this one it's like showing like okay giles as the watcher is being swayed as being in the council to do this certain thing because that's how he's been trained to do even though you could tell he feels badly about it um, and then in a real world lens, we're looking at it from a male perspective and then people having power over a young female girl who's trying to f- find herself and find her own power. But I just think of like phases when we kind of had a discussion about like the 90s version of progressive when Larry is being all sexist to a girl and then tries to wrap Oz into that whole like misogynistic conversation. It's like that guy, boys trying to bonding over like um, objectifying women. And then rather than Oz sitting there and, and then like kind of agreeing, he sits there and just says nothing, but he doesn't go against the grain. Right. Which is like, it's good that he doesn't like agree with what Larry's saying. Yeah. But he doesn't but like he stand up doesn't and say disagree, this is wrong. Which yeah. is progressive for the 90s. But then watching in today's lens, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. so you're not going along with it. But the whole way to break the pattern, the cycle, is yeah. to stand up against it. And so I think it's a little bit frustrating. But also it's nice because it's like we're getting this whole metaphor. But then we still see it in like the realistic part of the show that that is still happening where people are like – going along with it or not saying anything but not going against the grain. So even though Giles at the end breaks that whole like watcher's council, I'm I'm not doing what they're telling me to do and he is able to be free to be like his own sort of watcher and or father figure to Buffy. It's like we still get those moments of like in an actual situation in real life with sexism and then nothing is really being done about it. 
I think, yeah, I don't know. And we'll, we'll talk about it more when we get there, but I think that Giles is doing what he can. I, I mean, there's moments where he says, like, he doesn't care about the council. Like, he doesn't care about – I think just him saying, I care more for the Slayer than for the Watcher's Council is him putting up a line. Like, I don't know that there's really much more that Giles can do or say. Sometimes it's e- it's easier to make stands against big things, you know? Like if you walk around the corner and, you know, some guy is like sexually assaulting a woman, I, I think most men would do something to stop it right? Mm-hmm. Um, because that's kind of what we're taught growing up, you know, like knights in shining armor and, and all that stuff, which is like now, you know, you have the those guys like the white knight guys on the Internet that come to like, oh, we're going to, you know, <laughs> we're going to fight injustice. And you're like, all right, we don't need you. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's easy for guys to, to get up for that sort of thing. Um, but it's a lot harder when it's the little tiny comments that your friends make. Yeah. It's a lot harder it's when it's like the, the innocuous stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the because girl that then, gets the promotion over you and you're thinking, mm, sure. you know, like this, it's when it actually starts to hurt you. It's, it's also the, the internal um, misogyny or racism or whatever, where you, you, you catch yourself thinking and then you have to like, recognize oh that was that's where this thought came from um you know and and the thought may come from uh like what you guys were talking about with giles like years worth of um training and um repetition or whatever but catching hold of those thoughts and saying like no i'm not going to think that way and then like making a stand against your friends sometimes is a whole lot harder than I guess like the the big deal stuff. Oh, absolutely. Yep. The script says in this scene, it says, Giles opens the case to reveal one, and this is in all caps, freaking huge hypodermic needle. <laughs> oh, for real. I'll that say I was fast like forwarded. Massive. <laughs> so um I, I will put a little bit of a trigger warning for people that don't mm-hmm. like needles. AKA uh, me. <laughs> AKA Leah. Leah could mute me for a couple minutes. Um, I'm nervous too. But I, I spent the last year in paramedic school. Um, and a lot of that, you know, has to do with doing IVs and needles and everything like that. So I was kind of laughing uh, during the scene <laughs> where Giles is like, he's injecting her, not even in a vein. I was wondering like, it's about just that. in a random area in her arm. And I was like, what? What are you doing? And then he has his thumb over the needle site. And I'm like, you need to see what you're doing here, bro. You're going to inject it like right into her bone with like the biggest needle of all time. Like the needles are normally like super tiny. This thing is like a, a turkey baster. <laughs> it really is. Well, you know what they say. Like it's so big. The bigger the needle, the bigger the betrayal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, also, um, how does Buffy like not notice all these needle marks yeah. on her arm? These bruises. You know, too. Okay, no, I thought days. that too. I was like, okay, listen, y'all. Especially, maybe it's the fact that I'm hyper aware of it because I'm afraid of needles. But anytime I have to get my blood drawn or anything, but you know, he's like throwing up. Emphasis, you know. emphasis on have to, but like I notice the hole there. <laughs> for days after like i'm so avidly aware of it sometimes there's bruise marks but because it's like your, your arm body also is just like sore yes like it like I, so i don't know and i get the fact that like buffy's supposed to heal quickly but it's like 
this stuff is supposed to counteract that. Right. So she wouldn't so be it's healing. Like, yeah. It's definitely a plot device, but it's like one of those things where it's like, I would definitely notice if someone was injecting me with stuff daily. He's going to like stab his own thumb when he tries to stick her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's interesting that they put Buffy and Red in this moment too. I think they're clearly trying to show that what Giles is doing is not okay. In this moment, Giles is the predator. Even though he's doing things, I say with quotations, with the best motivations, it's still not okay. It's also literally illegal. Like, right. You, it's illegal oh, to yeah. inject people with anything against their will. It's probably illegal to say, hey, you, girl, go fight vampires. You're only 15, 16 years old. But yeah, no. Well, true. Well, she does have super strength. So, Or even just like the, the music that's being played, too, is very similar um, to the one of the vampire, Krylik. Um, and then him, like her being dozed off and then him kind of looking all sinister and then her like waking up and being like, oh, sorry, did I doze off? And he's like, oh, you know, it's fine. And then he just kind of looks so like it's intense. Creepy. It's, it's, yeah. yeah, it's, it's a lot. Do you guys remember when we watched The Dark Age, how we were like, oh, this feels very off. This feels weird. I get a lot of those vibes with this episode too, because we see things from Giles's perspective, but the way things are shot it's very similar to how it was shot in the Dark Age because it's close up to the table and it's from behind the table. Like when Buffy exits and leaves, we're sitting on the other side of the table watching the doors versus the other way. So I think, again, they're trying mm-hmm. to show from a differing perspective. Well, I was about to say too, but then when Buffy breaks out of her days, we're in Buffy's perspective and we're looking at Giles. And it's kind of like from a downward angle. So it's like when he's looking all jarring and weird – it's like he's looking down at the camera, which is very weird to see Giles in that perspective. Yeah, the camera work definitely frames Giles as a villain in this mm-hmm. scene. Like even his like creepy little smirk when she walks away and uh, like what you were saying, Tabby, where most of the time when villains are shot, it's from that like downward perspective mm-hmm. so that they're looming over the person. And Giles is very much like looming over um, Buffy in this scene. Well, that was that's what I was saying. Like, the beginning of this episode, you really don't know where it's going because you're so taken aback by like, what what is this random house for? Like, what is going on with the Watchers Council? Like, what is Giles doing? Like, you're just very confused. This season is just emotionally trying to wreck us. I mean, Gingerbread is like, let's let's <laughs> talk about the mother figure, and this one is like the father figure, and we're like, is anybody <laughs> safe after this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so jumping from that scene into the outside scene, Buffy and, and Willow are having that like conversation about Amy as a rat. I'm like, girl, Willow, I understand you're getting her like these like wheels and like these cute little things in there, but like Amy doesn't want a bell. Out- she wants to be Amy human wants again. her life. <laughs> yeah. I, d- I wrote down uh, Cordelia always has the best wardrobe. Yes. And like she she just looks awesome in the scene, like with her coat and everything. Mm-hmm. I will say this episode with like Cordelia and just like the like one or two scenes that she's in there. I feel like we got like a good version yes, of Cordelia. Yes, right. Like she feels like Cordelia, but she isn't mean. Like she comes and she she has that sweet moment where um, it's later on, but she like offered Buffy asked her right, and she's like, "Of course!" Like she doesn't even question well, it. She even sticks like, up for Buffy here in this moment as Buffy's yes. trying to stick up for her. Cordelia sees it, is shocked, and beats up the dude with her fists. Like this is the Cordelia yep. and Buffy that I saw after Homecoming. Like they were sticking up for each other, and we don't get to see that very much. This episode, you're like, okay, it was a little reminder that this is all facade that Cordy's putting up. 
Mm-hmm. Like she's still very nice. She's still hurting. Like, but I think she was eight. She looked like she was, as we said earlier, coming out of the woods of the breakup in this episode. Like she mentions having a rebound, but it's not like she's still beat up about it. She's just not ready for a new relationship. I think it's interesting. Like this episode just shows how reliant Buffy has been on her powers. Um, yeah. And you can see her kind of fumbling there going, I don't have my strength. I don't have my healing powers. I don't have my dexterity. I don't have, you know, all this stuff. And that's why I absolutely love in the end, she has to resort completely on her wits. And you can see her kind of like, okay, what do I have? And that's yeah. my instincts. And I love the little continuity in, in the episode too. And I know that they do this on purpose with like, I mean, to be fair, if if we were to like every episode, if she didn't have like her better healing powers or whatever, we'd have bruises on Buffy every single episode. But I like that they choose to show it in a emotional sense. And so mm-hmm. Buffy's really going through it emotionally. But in this one, she has bruises on her collarbone for the rest of the episode because of that one push. I did I did notice that too, Tabby. And it took me back because I was like, oh, I, I'm not used to seeing Buffy like beat up for the whole episode. You know, she'll have cuts and bruises or whatever, but usually it's gone by the next time you see her. And it kind of took me back. I was like, what's that on her chest? I'm like, oh, yeah, it's from that push that she hit, took, you know, multiple scenes ago. Or usually if she does, like if she is cut up or whatever, it's after like a big fight at the end of the episode. So like you only yes. really see her bruised or cut up for like a scene and then the episode's over and then you know the next episode she doesn't have a scratch on her because she's healed so it's like it's weird seeing her just like talk casually in midday with like a bruise on her chest okay but then this next scene where travers is like you're having doubts they're literally sitting having tea while there's a vampire like boarded up behind them and they're discussing the fate of this girl that they're going to literally they've they're like oh we've given her her powers so we're gonna like take them away this whole this whole idea of like as the watchers council we are capable of being able to decide whether we want you to even be the slayer or not like if they wanted to they probably could say hey you're not up to snuff we're going to have you die in the crucimentum who cares we just have another slayer that's going to line right back up which is also funny because i love how the watchers council acts like they're the ones who pick and choose which they can't because it's like it's the whole idea of like preying on impressionable girls who have this thing thrust upon them. So they're looking for any sort of answers, but they don't pick and choose. Like they're just, they just happen to be there and are able to at least guide them. But it's like, it's just very interesting seeing the Watchers Council try and use power that they don't really have. Well, it's just the arrogance that they have, you know, and um, it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, you know, with like the internal misogyny and then uh outward misogyny of all these old like white dudes and even you know women too where you know they they feel like they have so much power over people but you really don't but then they they act like they do and functionally it ends up being that they do because everyone just kind of goes along Mm -hmm. with it and they're like okay well guess you guys are the watchers and i'm the slayer so i'm gonna follow what you say even though she's the one with the freaking superpowers Mm -hmm. And she's the one that has to actually go out and fight. I'm like, why does she need them? You know, she really doesn't need But also, them. what Slayer did they really want? Do they want one that's powerful enough, but then also compliant? No, what they want is a Kendra. Yeah, I was about to say they want they a Kendra. They want that's Kendra exactly before she met Buffy, where she has no life, no connections, no attachment to the world. She is purely a weapon mm. who will just be pointed out what they want and will just fight. And- 
they had that and then they die because they don't have any instinct. will to live and anything to fight for and they also don't have instinct. Well, and there's a reason and there's a huge theory out there that the crucimentum, it's guised as a oh, we're trying to train and prepare the slayer. But in actuality, it's a control mechanism. They want their slayers young. So if it's like you die when you're 18 because, oh, now you're an adult kind of thing, you're harder to control. So we'll kill you off. Yep. But they can do it yep. with a vampire. It's a controlled killing so they don't get their hands dirty. And then they can be like, hey, all right, now we'll have an even younger slayer that comes in that's easier to control. There, it, there's no, It's no secret why this happens when they're 18. I was thinking about that too, Sarah. Like, what happens when your slayer is 45? Yeah. You know, or like 50. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I don't want to listen to you guys anymore. I'm a grown woman. Yeah. Like, uh -huh. I'm going to do my own thing. But the thing is, though, it would never, ever get to 45. Because it's like, you really think about it. High school is such a fundamental age. It's it's really where you learn yourself and you, you start to grow up is like through high school. You're learning all that. Then you turn 18 and you're really like, okay, who do I listen to? Who, who do I actually take advice from? And who do I shut out? Because I can now. I'm an adult. And so I think it's one of those things where it's like, Sarah's right. They choose to have it at an 18th birthday because... They really want to see, and I'm I'm curious if they've actually done this for a lot of slayers, or if it's only the ones that they're scared about. Yeah, right. And scared about losing control of. Speaking of um exposition, I feel like this is one of my favorite organic exposition in like the the show, and it's like it's very much like he needs to reiterate the reasons why they do this to Giles. It's a reminder to Giles, but also new information to us, and that's one mm -hmm. of my favorite ways of exposition. Um. And then Giles kind of biting back, being like, this is an archaic exercise in cruelty. Um, and he, he mentions, he's like, if any one of the council still had any actual contact with the Slayer, they would see. But I'm the one in the thick of it, which is so true. Like, no one else is talking to her. If anyone, Giles is the one who sees everything, knows what to do. Um, and then he mentions, says, you're too close. You can't make the decision. You're not qualified. Well, I also think that the reason why all of the council members aren't in contact with Buffy is because they would have the same type of reaction that Giles would. Because once you have an attachment to someone, you can't treat them like a weapon anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think they purposely are a detached group because it is so easy to just lose lives when you have zero attachment to them. And you know, it's interesting because this has happened forever mm -hmm. in, in the military. You know, where you have these young, this is why they, the uh, average age of people in the military is like 18 to 25, mm. um, because they're young, they're easy to uh, manipulate and control, and they're expendable. And there's always going to be a new round of young people coming up. And that's one of the reasons why they have no fraternization rules between officers and enlisted, mm -hmm. where the officers, the leaders are literally legally not allowed to hang yep. out with and be friends with <laughs> young enlisted people you know and sarah sarah knows that too yeah um so, so you know it creates a separation yeah. between the, the, the leaders and the enlisted because so it's easier mm -hmm. you know if you have an officer who has to send their men into you know the machine gun nest or whatever and they know that a lot of them are going to die, it's easier to make that decision if you don't mm. personally know the people that you're sending over there to oh, die. Well, it's, that is so sad. It's interesting that you bring that up, David, and and for bringing up the whole Giles being emotionally distant this episode. You see him resorting back to what the council has been telling him to do and how to be a normal quote-unquote watcher. And there's that whole switch at the end when he sees Buffy 
defeated and angry and hurt and betrayed by him. And then he tells her what's happening. There's a couple of um, bits of dialogue that are actually cut out that were in the script, which make Giles significantly more sympathetic. So they had the scene in the hallway where they're talking. Giles notices Buffy's bruise and says, oh, that's Mm. a nasty bruise. They talk about it. So before they even jump into Travers explaining about the crucimentum, you have this dialogue. So Travers says, but you lodged your appeals with the Watcher's Council and still they've decided to go forward. There's nothing we can do now but carry on. Giles says, you know, I've always had nothing but the utmost respect for the Council. I followed their dictates to the letter, but this. And then Travers goes into saying the Crucimentum is not easy for Slayers or Watchers. Giles says it's antiquated exercise and cruelty. And then Travers says, which is why you're not qualified to make this decision. But then there's another line of Giles that it's cut out. Giles says, I'm not, meaning I'm not cl- I'm not too close to Buffy. No test is necessary of her, especially not one as perverse as this. I'm appealing to you as a friend and colleague, Quentin. I know you can put a stop to it. And it says, Quentin seems struck by Giles' words, a beat, then his resolve returns. And then it goes into the I'm sorry part. I feel like they should have left that in. It I makes agree. Giles more sympathetic. But I think they were trying to purposely make Giles seem harsh. And I, I kind of appreciate it. They're trying to not soften the effect of what Giles is doing. Even if you feel coerced into something, we all still have choices mm-hmm. and we all have the duty to choose what's right. And even if you're, even if the leadership and whatever organization you're in, and, and I'll take this back to the military because uh, they are waging a war. So this is in a certain sense, like a military organization. Um you have the duty as a first line leader to say no to your superiors if you know that the actions you're being asked to do are immoral. You know, and that's like, you know, you can go back to Vietnam and things like that where um, war crimes were committed and they were uh, ordered to commit those war crimes by their leaders. And consequences are going to happen when you stand against your leaders. Like people were um, court martialed and things like that. But then later pardoned after those uh, those actions were like looked upon, um, I guess, through the eyes of history. I appreciate that they're purposely painting Giles in a much harsher position. They're not showing all this stuff because it would be too easy to be like, well, Giles was trying. Giles was doing all this stuff. By cutting all this out, they're showing that Giles is like hesitant about it, but he's still going along with it. He's still making active decisions and choices to do that. I feel like this episode does a good job because – you you definitely, without a doubt, see that Giles is at fault. He does not make the right decision. But I, I like that they still show that Giles is still a good guy. Mm-hmm. He still speaks up for yes. Buffy on her behalf. Yeah. He goes through and he makes the wrong decision, but he speaks up for her. He tries to speak up for her and get it to stop. And mm-hmm. in the end, he makes the right decision yeah. and loses his job for it. Yep. And he makes a wrong decision, but it's like you are able to forgive him because you see that ultimately he does care for Buffy and that comes first. Um, David, do you know the whole definition of different kryptonite? I feel like you were more of a Superman fan than I was. I know some of them. I mean, there are a butt ton of different kryptonites. Some of them do weird stuff. Yeah. One of them makes it Oh, there was – there was pink kryptonite back in the day that made him. They made gay. him fall. Throw, yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. Literally, I'm not even kidding you. It was like in the in the 40s or 50s, and yeah. he he like comes in and he's wearing like 
he's wearing like a bow tie and he's like super dapper and like hits on Jimmy. Like not would not happen today. <laughs> um, that one kind of got like written out after, uh, you know, the, the 2000s. But uh, no, there's a there's a, a bunch of kryptonites. There's gold kryptonite, silver, white, blue, green, red. It's interesting that they bring up kryptonite in this episode when they're like those crystals. Well, the whole the whole concept of it like sucking someone's power and stuff. I, yeah, it's yeah. funny. But okay, so according to IMDb and Buffy Wiki, Oz and Xander's debate about Superman's kryptonite. There are five distinct varieties of kryptonite, green, red, gold, blue, and white. The first three varieties are toxic to Superman. Green kills, red mutates, and gold drains power. Therefore, Oz was correct, and it was Xander who got it wrong. Got it. I didn't need to look that up to know. Yeah. yeah you can tell oh, by yeah, the way they knew. frame it. We all knew yeah. that Oz was right. <laughs> Oz is always right. Um, and then Buffy and Willow have that conversation where Willow kind of mentions, like, well, what if you don't ever give back your powers? And... You can see Buffy's like, well, I'll deal. But we all know that Buffy's like, I don't know what I'm going to do if I don't have my powers back. And then creepy music again in the boarding house. <laughs> These poor guys trying to sleep while this guy's like screaming. <laughs> I don't know how they're even sleeping. Or who even signed up to to be those two guards? Well, like what money are they giving they're them? They're probably like trainee watchers. They are. The script says that oh. they're wa- they're like young watchers. So my guess is they probably have to do this in order to graduate and be like mm. real watchers. How many watchers do they have for one Slayer? Ridiculous. And only one of them. And none of them have contact yes. with us. Yeah. They all go to the retreat except for Giles. And then Zachary, as he's about to be given the pills, he pops his shoulder out of his socket takes it out of that was a crappily the- made straight jacket oh i wrote down like how do they not have more security <laughs> yeah. like they're like this is the whole like watcher organization they're supposed to be like right. crazy powerful and have all this like connections Fun. and they have two dudes who are sleep deprived um <laughs> by themselves in the in this house with this crazy vampire and that's all the security they ever have also what are the pills for they could be because he's crazy and it helps, you know, calm him down. But I think that it's more likely that the Watchers Council has him addicted to them because it's easier to control. Could also be a placebo mm-hmm. too, you know, where he thinks that yeah. it, uh, it like sure. cures his his craziness, but it's, they're actually nothing, you know. Because if like at the end of the episode when she gives him the holy water, he immediately was like totally fine, right? You know, it, yeah. Uh, be- before like his pills take a while to. Work, the pills right? hit before the holy so, water did, and I was like, no, I don't think that's yeah, how that exactly. works. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was thinking maybe they're like more of a, a placebo than anything. Yeah, right. Uh, to answer David's confusion about like the security, I really feel like they don't care depending uh, – like, um, well, I think that's to obvious. According yeah. response. Well, to his response at the end with like him taking Joyce and then Giles being angry that everything's kind of going a bust, and he's just like, well, it's already like happening right now, like the – Slayer entered the field of play like a second ago or whatever. I don't think he really cares that much. Well, you would think that they would care at least for like their themselves, you know, like their trainee uh, councils guys. I think he only cares about himself. I don't think he cares about those trainees. He's like, meh. Yeah, it's, that's it's all fair. for the cause. <laughs> it's all for the cause. <laughs> the, the random cause so we can go on our retreats and not invite the actual watcher doing all the work. Uh, so Zachary strangles the poor trainee watcher dude. I, I wrote down that the as soon as he's not crazy and he like starts talking to the other vampire, he's actually like super charismatic. Oh, uh, <laughs> and like starts like it's stealing okay the scene. It's okay yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not okay. Poor Blair's <laughs> dying. Definitely not okay. <laughs> I was literally thinking that. Like if I was that guy, I'd be like, that's not. <laughs> All right. And then 
I feel like this scene is going to take a lot of um, discussion. So in the Angel Mansion scene, um, Angela gives her – is it a book of poem? Yeah, it's Browning's Sonnets. I want. Can I talk about that real fast? Yes. Go for it. <laughs> Tommy, I figured you were. I was waiting for you to. <laughs> yeah, well, and David knows too. He is an English major. Yeah. So, okay, this is really significant. Um, Book of Sonnets is from the Portuguese Book of Sonnets by Elizabeth Barrett Browning, published in 1850 and is a compilation of 44 love sonnets. Her works had major influence on Edgar Allan Poe and Emily Dickinson, which anyone remember Owen, (laughs) who was obsessed with Emily Dickinson, you know, poetry and death. Um, She actually was a pretty phenomenal person. She campaigned for the abolition of slavery as well as child labor reform, two things which nobody did back in 1850. Um, A lot of her works hold religious themes as she studied Dante's Inferno, Paradise Lost. She also learned Hebrew so she could actually study the Hebrew Bible. And she used to love discussing theology and really wished that she could speak Greek. Um, She's quoted to have saying that she believed that Christ's religion is essentially poetry poetry glorified, which I think is pretty cool. One of the most popular poems that she has, I think pretty much everyone has heard of at least the first line is number 43. And it's, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. And I'm just going to read the whole poem to you because I guarantee that Angel probably like, you know, rabbit eared this one for Buffy. So it's, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach when feeling out of sight for the ends of being an ideal grace. I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need by sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with the passion put to use in my old griefs and with my childhood faith. I love thee with a love I seemed to lose with my lost saints. I love thee with the breath, smiles, tears of all my life. And if God choose, I shall but love thee better after death. Isn't that so sweet? Because he's dead. He loves her after death. Because he's dead. (laughs) Sarah, we had to memorize that in high school. I know we did. I do not remember it. (laughs) (laughs) Did you actually memorize it? Oh, I totally (laughs) did. Because, but the thing is, remember, I joined English class late. So I had two weeks to memorize this one and another one. And so I speed memorized everything and like regurgitated it and then immediately forgot it. (laughs) Brain dumped it immediately. (laughs) Exactly. Well, it's, um, this, this one is really interesting because. Amy in the episode The Witch back in season one, Amy deliberately misquotes this um, right before she's going to try out for cheerleading. And she says, oh, how I hate this. Let me count the ways. And then it's also the exact same episode where Xander gives Buffy that bracelet and the bracelet says yours always, which Angel wrote always in the front of this book. So I love that like they have those little tie-ins and stuff. I just think it's funny that he's like, why'd you seem more excited last year when he got his severed arm in a box? (laughs) (laughs) It's like this sweet little like thing that he bought up being like, she's going to love it. And she's like, thank you. When her mind's like on like (laughs) other things. I will say though, I think it's sweet that the only person that we really see acknowledge Buffy's like birthday is Angel. It's like Angel and her mom, because her mom offers to go to the ice show with her. Well, Xander acknowledged it, but he wanted a full-on yeah, party. Yeah, I was about to say, Xander wanted to throw a party. Because yeah, exactly. he's in love with her. Right. <laughs> he has it marked on his calendar <laughs> for months. <laughs> the, script, the script says that Buffy very much likes the book. It's just she's very distracted. I will say, Angel is trying so hard in the scene. <laughs> like, he, he really is like... 
putting forth his A plus effort. And like, I love him for that. But like, he, like Buffy is like all sad and not really there. And Angel is like really, really trying. Fireplace, book of poems, talking about he loved her since the first moment he saw her. Like, it's really trying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So question, what do you guys think about this whole conversation? Because I think it's, it's very interesting. I wrote that it's a little cheesy. Um, His like whole heart speech was a little cheesy, but then, Literally right after that, they are both like, oh, that's kind of crazy. I also feel like that's realistic because like sometimes when you're outside of like a relationship, you'll hear people like say stuff and you're like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> but then you fall in love and you're like, you catch yourself saying stuff and you're like, I can't believe I just said that. You're like, so, so I, true. Like it's just like it's one of those things where it's like sometimes like you just get caught up in the moment and then you're like rationality sets in and you're like, oh, I hate that mm. I just did that. <laughs> But then you like you start doing that when you're in a new relationship and you're like, oh, who even am I? (laughs) We've all been there. But I do. Okay, so I know we talked a little bit about this um, and I know I know your thoughts on this, David, but I do think it's really important. Angel talking about how he saw Buffy. He says he fell in love with her. He says, because I could see your heart, you held it before you for everyone to see. And I worried that we bruised or torn more than anything in my life. I wanted to keep it safe. So the age gap thing, which we've talked about and beaten to death, obviously I'm not a fan of that. But the thing is that I can excuse it for two main reasons. One, it's a vampire trope. It's a vampire show mm-hmm. for, well, for three reasons. Two, because they initially wrote Angel to be 17. Even though, yes, he is like 200 and something years old, he's supposed to be at the age of a 17-year-old. But the third reason, and I think is one of the, the stronger reasons, is because we know Angel's entire motivations. That's different when you're talking to someone in real life because it's like they could tell you one thing, but you don't actually know where they're at. For Angel, we know why he's there. We know what he's doing. We know what his motivations are. Because of it, it's not predatory. We know that he cares about Buffy. And he, again, talks about it here and says he wanted to help her. And so I think that when people are like, oh, he's stalking her or, oh, he's being predatory and stuff, it's like, no, he's not because we know his full intentions. So it makes absolutely no sense to even use that logic, you know? Buffy holds such a special place in like the cultural zeitgeist, um, especially like, you know, for, for a lot of people growing up in the nineties, it's, it was a very like formative thing for them growing up. So it, it's definitely geared more towards actual teenagers and younger people. She's a huge stand in for people. Right. And so normalizing the, that is a problem um, for me personally. Like, but, but I, you know, I'm willing to look beyond that. Yeah. Um, but I, I will say kind of to your point, like how and when you meet somebody does set a huge tone for any sort of further relationship you're going to have. That's why um, I, I, don't, I can't even think of an example, but there are um, like movies or TV shows or wherever where one character will meet another character when they're a kid and then they become a romantic interest like 10, 15 years later or whatever. And you're like, that's still kind of gross because you knew them when they were a child, you know, and you were not a child at that time. Maybe you were a teenager or whatever. No. And I mean, I will say like in my, in a perfect world, in my preference, I wish that this wasn't here because, and I wish that they hadn't met when she was so young and stuff, simply because I do think that it creates a 
in uh, uncomfortable unnecessary issue. And, yes, exactly. Yeah. But I will say I don't think that it is something that should like a lot of people hold that against the Buffy and Angel relationship and I don't think that it should be because that's not the narrative that the show is trying to tell and that's yeah. not you know and because we yeah. know and I think they they really really did a good job of showing the Buffy and Angel dynamic as really healthy as Buffy and Angel not Buffy and Angelus. And so I think it's just like uh why'd you put that in there because that's not the that's not the dynamic of Buffy and Angel and so it's like like it makes it very difficult cuz you're like what that was so unnecessary like you sure. could have you didn't need right. to put that in there, you know? And I'm far more comfortable with their relationship after she's 18. Totally. You know? Which is fair. Like, once she's 18, she can date whoever she wants. You know? She can date Ted if she wants to. <laughs> so we jump back and see that Zachary drained, and they Zachary. probably had a sucking fest with the other trainee. I love um, how you're calling him Zachary. <laughs> <laughs> I know. He just seems like Zachary. He doesn't seem like a Kralik to me. I'm not going to call him Kralik. He's like, ah, you're up. I was afraid I drained you too much. I do that sometimes. They so really creepy. Give him such quick dialogue. Really he's adds like to his three dimensional character. While he's licking, smacking his finger. <laughs> Ew. Well, that's why I'm saying he's super charismatic uh-huh. because he just like starts stealing every scene he's in. <laughs> I know. Wrong kind of ASMR, though. Thank you. <laughs> um, the guy sets him free. Then he takes his pills again, says, it's a game. Just because we're not going to play by the rules doesn't mean we're not going to play. Ah, oh, such a good line. Why would the council pick that specific vampire for this? Like a creepy, um, psychotic vampire that's known for like torturing young women. Like they could have picked literally any mm-hmm. vampire. I feel like they're just trying to get rid of Buffy. Yeah. It really feels like I was about like to say, that. I was like, I really feel like they went in with all the stops for this dude because they know Buffy's strong. Maybe Krennic is like setting her up, and maybe he purposely gave him a straight coat that um, he knew. Oh, Quentin like, Travers, and he's also working these two. Oh, yeah, Travers. Yeah, he's also working these two guys like super hard, mm-hmm. and tells him to sleep in shifts. So maybe this is m- my head cannon. Maybe he's setting uh, all this up so that Buffy does die. Well, I mean, let's yeah. think about the fact that they have not included Giles in the retreats. They've mm-hmm. cut him out of things. I, it could be that they're also a little bit nervous about Giles's relationship to Buffy. And they're like, if we can just get rid of these two guys, Faith is an easier Slayer to control. We already have Faith. Whatever other Slayer pops up after this, you know, who knows? The reason why episodes like this are so jarring and so like your eyes glued to it is because they don't usually do such creepy scenes like this next one. Like Giles coming in and it's empty and he's walking around and oh, just like chef's kiss. And I I love Giles too. As soon as he finds Mm -hmm. the blood, he's like snaps off a stake and he's like going around patrolling. Yeah, he goes into fight. That's what I was going to say, Sarah. It's like, I like that he still has that ripper side of him that's like, let's fight. Let's go figure this out first instead of just like running and being like telling Buffy like, oh my gosh. Well, he also knows that Buffy, you know, Buffy doesn't have her her power too. So, you know, that's him, like uh, the good side of his parental instinct in this is that, you know, he knows that if Buffy doesn't have a power, he's probably more capable of handling the vampire than she is, you know? So he like, he kind of goes on the offensive a little bit there especially later when he comes with the the car too that whole scene or that that shot of the arm is very hitchcock this entire episode gives me major mm-hmm. hitchcock vibes with you know psycho and yeah i took a, a class on gothic literature in, Ooh, in college because uh, i was an english major um but that's one of the things that we talked about is the difference between uh horror um terror and dread and Horror is where you see like blood exploding yeah. and like guts and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. 
terror is when you're like viscerally scared of something. Right. So, um, uh, terror, you know, would be like the monster pops up on scene and it's, and it's so like scary that you're, you feel terrified. Now, dread is when there's like this buildup of anticipation mm. where you know something bad is going to happen. You know that like the monster's right around the corner and you know that you're going to see, you know, terror or horror and you're anticipating it. And I think that the best, um, horror movies or best scary movies or whatever, or even the best Gothic novels, like lean heavy into their dread portion. Well, uh, to that point, David, and maybe that's why Sarah said this reminds her a lot of Hitchcock is because um, there's a reason why he's called is the master of um, suspense. Is that what he's called? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a reason why he's called that is because, and Lee and I were just talking about this, the fact that like, instead of having a lot of CGI, they had to rely a lot on acting back then to kind of build up that creepy scenario. Um, A good example of this, other than Psycho, I think a better example of Psycho is Rear Window. The whole movie is just- Oh, yeah. 100% Yeah, whole movie is him just looking out and cluing things together. It's kind of a a sinister, creepy lens from his perspective. And then watching things happen, and it says suspense, and there's only a big action third act at the very end, Mm -hmm. and where he comes into his apartment, and you're like, holy crap. And that's the terror Mm -hmm. portion. But exactly. the entire movie the up till that scene is dread. all dread. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And there's a reason why he's the master of that. You know, Tabby, who's doing that really well today in modern horror mm-hmm. is Jordan Peele um, with like his movies like Get, Get Out. Out. Mm-hmm. Jordan um, Peele is yes. phenomenal. And actually, um, uh, John Krasinski with A Quiet Place. Yes. Two oh, yes. of oh the like, most like dreadful yes. movies. Yes. Like Quiet Place, like... The, the moments where the monster actually kills are like the least scary right. because they're like, all right, well, yeah. it's over. But like when, when she's like holding the baby and the monster's right there, you're like so scared. And then Buffy, this is the whole like men objectifying her, her walking. She's holding like the, the poem book that Angel gives her kind of as like a shield. I love that they have the dialogue, walk me home, don't be silly, Angel, I can take care of myself. That is, it's funny, but it's also so important because she easily could have gone and gotten Angel yeah. and just been like, Angel, hey, this vamp got my mom, come help me out. But the fact that she went and did it by herself, I love that that was an intentional choice in the episode's part to do that because Angel, he's he was in a good chunk of this episode. He easily could have been in the last part. And I love that he wasn't because it had to be Buffy. And if Angel had done all of this, it would have taken away from the resourcefulness of Buffy. Um, and I just, I think that was a really a good choice. Well, and I think that ultimately Buffy didn't even think about that. Yeah, I no, she didn't. I think Buffy was just like, yeah, totally. my mom is in danger and I'm going to go help her. Yeah. Like you can tell she did yeah. not, she had nothing else on her mind. Because mm-hmm. realistically, like going and getting Angel would have been the like the good choice at that point because mm-hmm. Angel's powerful and he can help. Um, and then the whole humming, ooh, and then she's like, "Hummers, big turn off." I like guys who can remember the lyrics. He's like, "You know, my mind isn't what it used to be." Oh my <laughs> gosh, like, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> See, he steals every scene. He does. They shouldn't have killed him. They should have brought him back for more episodes. <laughs> Um, this whole chase scene is very re- reminiscent, and it was a homage to Buffy's um, or Sarah Michelle Gellar's chase scene. And I know what you did last summer. It's very, very I need similar. To re- I need to watch oh. that one. Does she drop her book of poetry? No, I, I think so. Forget. Oh, maybe I don't she think does. she's running with anything. 
Oh yeah, I don't know. I think her yeah, arms she are because she has to jump over oh, the fence. Oh, no, she so lost sad. the book. Oh no! <laughs> He's like been taking months trying to find it. He got like a first Poor edition. Angel man, <laughs> all that work. <laughs> he got the author to sign it because he was alive during that time. I'm just kidding. Oh no! Actually, I feel like Angel would have been a big fan of uh, Elizabeth Browning at the time. All right, so I'm angry. I'm angry at whoever it was that didn't stop their freaking car to help Buffy. Like, who has a young girl out there yelling, "I need help! I need it help!" It is a and bit goes, alarming, though. Not gonna lie. Like, if I was driving by and someone was like really close to our flailing on my arms, I'd be like, "They're gassing it." But it's also okay. It's also Sunnydale at night. Like yeah. people are very aware of the fact that everyone yeah, she's is probably dying a vampire. And that there's vampires. Like I wouldn't stop either. The frick. I'd be like, no, it's a vampire for sure. <laughs> and we don't know who's driving this car. Like, you know, this this may not be a big burly dude. This may be some like 16-year-old girl who just got her driver's license, you know, and is like freaking out just being on the road. Like, we have no idea who's driving this car. Um, Giles pops up, he gets her in the car, the whatever. Watcher trainer dude tries to get in. She kicks him off. Um, and then we go to the library scene. This is so important because we've seen Buffy desperately want a normal life. And multiple times in this season, they've given her glimpses of that. Mm-hmm. And each time it's been, I don't want that anymore. And I think that that was the turning point in becoming part two in Anne. Once Buffy like fully accepted that calling she was never looking back and in her mind it's this is who i am now and so it's like someone chopped off her arm and she's she's having to learn how to live life with one arm and she's going i'm missing a part of myself i don't know how to do this i do really like that sarah because there there are other um tv shows like smallville's kind of like this where you know, you have a superpowered character and Buffy's definitely a superhero. Even Joss Whedon says that he views Buffy as a mm-hmm. superhero um, who the superhero, the entire show is like, well, I just want a normal life. It's like at, at a certain point, just get over yeah. it. Like, except yeah. that you're not going to and learn to love the life right. that you're in. And so I, I like that Buffy. Yeah. The show deals with that, but then it moves yeah. on. And it, and it allows her to, like, be comfortable in her role as a slayer. And I think that lets the character yep. grow. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why Buffy as a show ends up becoming a lot deeper than a lot of these other, like, CW uh, superhero shows and things like that. They're not afraid of changing their character or allowing their character to change. This scene is beautiful and I love the dialogue. But I think my favorite thing about the scene is the like facial acting that mm-hmm. goes on with Sarah Michelle Geller and um, Anthony Stewarthead, but mainly like Sarah, she is just but not like I can't keep my eyes off her when she is acting in the scene. And I'll say that um, her reaction is like one hundred percent understandable and appropriate. Like I would never be able to trust Giles the same way again. Like once that level yeah. of trust is gone, when someone has violated you um, that much, like, yeah, she she can you can forgive and you can like move on with your life and, and you can be close again. But like, I don't know if I would ever be able to trust Giles uh, completely after that. What they did so well in the scene, not only, oh gosh, the acting, they really acted their butts off in the scene, but like the amount of layers of hurt that Buffy brings up is just each time is a dagger to the heart. It's interesting how this contrasts the scene in Revelations. So do you guys remember in Revelations where 
mm-hmm. it's revealed that Angel's back. And Giles has that very firm conversation with her where he says, you have no respect for me or the position I hold. And he's, you know, it was it talked about how it was an embarrassment for him and all this stuff. He's very hard on Buffy. And it's this whole idea of like, trust, you should have come and talked to me. And I see this as a that exact same thing happening just on Giles's on Giles's end. Giles gets on Buffy for lying to him, saying she has no respect for him, yet he weaponizes that respect and that position that mm-hmm. he has, and he's using mm-hmm. it against her here. He initially chooses his position in this in this episode over their relationship. And so I think that that's doubly why it's hurtful for Buffy. And it's also, I think, in this moment, Giles recognizes that he's messed up and that he is in the wrong. But I think it's really hard to watch this and go, Buffy's the one that experiences all the consequences for these things. And all Giles, the only you know consequence he experienced in Revelations for her not being honest with him is when he was embarrassed in front of Mrs. Post, you know? So it's just, it's frustrating to see this and like, kudos to Giles for recognizing his mistake, but it's just like, ugh. Fun fact, David Fury, the writer of the episode, said that the name Zachary Kralik is actually his nephew's name, his four-year-old nephew. What the heck? (laughs) He grows up and he's like, you may name me after this character. Yeah, exactly. I feel like Sarah would name a monster after Gwen. (laughs) Well, Gwendolyn Post. There you go. (laughs) Well, I will say, uh, kind of going off what Tavi said, they do kind of use a little bit of comedy with Cordelia when she comes in. Yeah, that's about true. How yeah. if it's the end of the world, she doesn't want to finish her paper and blah, 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 blah. And it feels very like natural for a character. It doesn't take like, us out. They the are same. in the middle in like a, a library. And so it's mm-hmm. like Cordelia is going to come in and stuff. But I kind of like what I said earlier about Cordelia. Like I love how she immediately switches up when she sees that Buffy mm-hmm. isn't okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Buffy asks her her ride and, and Cordelia is like, of course. Like, and you, the, Even she acted that well. Like you can see the compassion on her face when she's like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Their use of Cordelia in this episode is great because Cordelia has yeah. always been the human representation of Buffy. I mean, Buffy even mentions it. She says, I was really vapid. And she says, I was worse than Cordelia when I before I became a slayer. Mm-hmm. And so when she keeps talking about that and then actually showing Cordelia, they're like, no, Cordelia has depth now. And I love that we kind of get to see who Buffy would have been if she wasn't the slayer. And so I think Buffy's being a little bit hard on herself pre-slayer because i think that yes you are definitely who you are because you are the slayer but that's also who you are deep down too like you're not this way just because you are the slayer you're this way because you're a good person too and everyone i think in the show gives cordelia far too hard of a time you know like cordelia is actually responsible she's researching her essay you know she yeah. like <laughs> <laughs> the bare minimum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> she drove herself to school. <laughs> there's actually there's also no music. Kind of switching gears a little bit, but this scene has no music, and this is an episode that has a lot of good music. In true Whedon esque form, he saves those moments for the times that he wants us to be as uncomfortable as possible. He wants us to feel. Every single bit of emotion, every voice crack, every clunk of whatever it is they're throwing, because this betrayal is deep. This hits deep. And that's a, that's a good point, Sarah, because music can be used to um, heighten, but it can also be used to mask. And music can be like a, a bit of a comfort blanket uh, to separate us from um, a, a movie or a TV show. Sometimes it can help us yeah. be immersed into the movie or TV show. But also, it can remind us that what we're watching isn't real. And when you remove music, it becomes much more like real life. 
And so you're, yep. you're, when you have an emotional scene like this with no music, you're far more likely as an audience member to start to like empathize with the character and put yourself in their shoes um, or to feel that like the awkwardness, the embarrassment of like being around two people that are fighting uh, mm-hmm. if there is no music to remind you that what you're watching yeah. isn't real. All Things Philosophical on Buffy the Vampire Slayer talks about um, ethics. And in this in this episode, we see Giles' warrior ethics and caregiver ethics coming to a head. And then warrior ethics are seen as morality as a set of abstract ideals of behavior or character, which an individual must adhere to impartially across situations. So honesty, truthfulness, justice, all this other stuff. Um, under this morality, caring for one individual above others is often trivialized as undue softness, sentimentality that leads to unclear thinking or unethical favoritism. The underemphasized caregiver morality, on the other hand, and they say underemphasized because people often look down at this type of morality, holds that there is more to morality than following an abstract set of principles. Under the caregiver morality, people are motivated by feelings such as love, affection, compassion, sympathy, and empathy towards those they have close relationships to. The danger of impartiality from this point of view is that it can make us neglect the special duties we have to our family and friends and responsibilities that demand emotional attachment. What is objectivity except the ability to see things as they really are? And who is more objective, the dispassionate outsider or the emotionally involved insider who is more familiar with the situation? Travers denies Giles the right to have a say in whether Buffy is tested or not because he is, quote unquote, too close to the situation. Is this a viable argument? And I think that, yeah, it it makes a case for both sides, but I think ultimately you should never be like robbing someone mm-hmm. of their consent of something. I mm-hmm. think there a case could be made for Giles going to Buffy and even to Travers and saying, I'm okay with the chrysamentum as long as Buffy knows what she's going into. I don't understand why they didn't have to tell Buffy mm-hmm. yeah. that this is happening and why that nullifies the whole thing. It seals it's just shady. Well and I yeah. brought up the um like the military before um, and you kind of talk about like Giles's warrior mentality here, coupled with their his paternal mentality, and you definitely see that mm-hmm. in the military. Um, and I think that there is, to a certain extent, a necessary element for it because, uh, like, if your country is being attacked, right? Well, you're not just going to like bow down and surrender and let them come in and take all right. your stuff. So you have to right. uh, you have to fight, and the people in charge of um, making the tough decisions, you're protecting them by making them be separated from their emotions by not allowing them uh, legally to, um, to know the people under them. But at the same time, you have people who are doing the actual fighting that are the most vulnerable and they're getting things like PTSD and stuff like that. And they probably need a parental figure. They need a, a nurturing, caring, loving mentor more than anything and you're removing even the possibility of that mm. when you make it so that anybody in a leadership position above them can't hang out with them can't relate to them can't be compassionate to them um in any sort of like social setting and so i think that's one of the reasons why you have so much ptsd with military and even buffy later on where um yeah there needs to be a separation to a certain extent but the, like these people are longing for leadership. They're longing for compassion, for uh, connection. Connection, exactly. And you're removing all of that from them. 
I think it's people like to boil down complex situations and, and um, scenarios to black or white. It's either this or it's that. We see mm-hmm. that in politics. We see that in so many different things. And life is not like that. And I, so I think that for people to be like, we either have to choose between a warrior morality or ethics and the caregiver. And it's like life is a blend of the two. And I think that I understand why there's policy and why there's rules, but it's so important for us to say, we also need to look at situation by situation and go, okay, what is the most loving? What is the wisest thing to do in this scenario versus we have to adhere to one set of things. And that's a lot. It's typically more expensive and it's typically a lot harder to do. And so it, you know, you have these big corporations and military and governments that choose one way of doing things and people get lost. Yeah, hundred percent. So then Joyce is at the table doing bills. Here's crying because we know Joyce has a soft spot for babies and terrifying to find Buffy's coat and there's a vampire in it. Like we don't, can we talk about how creepy that would be? Like, that's terrifying. I will say at first, I was a little mad at Joyce because I was like, Joyce, you're so stupid. You live in Sunnydale. Why are you going and like, like, why are you leaving it unattended? But then I realized, I was like, you know what? Her daughter is Buffy. She's Joyce Summers. She's like, always on edge because of, of that. She's always on edge because she's always wanting to protect Buffy. And so it's like, if she thinks that Buffy is out there, of course she's going to go out there. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And then Buffy walks in on the other side. Um Walks up, sees the front doors open, and then sees a Polaroid of him, like, holding Ugh. Joyce's neck. And then you see her upstairs in a uh, fit of panic with her overalls of pain and stuffing a, a ton of weapons. I think she and- took everything in her trunk. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And then you see – I love how they kind of, like, linger on the holy water um, and put it in there, which I didn't even really notice beforehand. I was like, okay, so she has holy water, guys. Yeah, so- yeah, yeah. But I think it <laughs> – it also is a point to show that usually Buffy doesn't bring holy water or crosses. Yeah, we never usually that. that's the stuff that like Willow and Xander bring because they're the two weapons that you can use without force. I, say, I know we laugh about the overalls of pain and we're like, oh, she wears them when she's dr- depressed and sad. Honestly, I think Buffy wore them strategically because they have large pockets. Oh, huh. The overalls of pockets. The overalls of pockets. That's the new name. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Painful pockets. But seriously, this is the this is the nineties. Girls don't have pockets in their pants generally. Girl. So you need overalls, man. <laughs> oh gosh. And then this whole scene. Oh, I just I love scenes like this. I'm like such a whore for them. In the script, it says after he says she's dead to me now, mostly because I killed and ate her, he says, but also because time's been a healing salve. I'm shunned mm-hmm. by my kind. I'm aware of that. And then he goes, but it's okay. I can be sealed inside a box for six years, give or take, and not care because I know I won't be alone much longer. And then he talks about making Buffy into someone like him. And I think, once again, going back to nightmares, this episode touches on pretty much all of Buffy's nightmares, which was turning into a vamp. The fact that her dad like leaves her and abandons her. And then um, for Giles, his number one fear was that he would somehow fail Buffy and she would end up getting killed because he didn't do his job well enough. And so I love that they're playing on those fears in this episode. And I, what I find so tasteful about this episode is, is it, yes, there are some like small horror tropes that they use, but they don't utilize them in ways that we've seen before. We like, I really feel like they're really fresh with their material in a like horror episode. Um, and the Polaroid is, was one that I was like, really like, 
I was like, wow, I really love the way they used that. Buffy comes in, takes a stake to kind of stop the door from closing. I like how they show small things of her thinking on her feet when she really wouldn't have to rely on. Usually Buffy would come in, kind of make it really loud that she's there, make some puns, like kind of catch them by surprise, but she's not wanting to be seen. And I love the fact that we have the crossbow again. She's kind of resorting back to season one finale where she wants to be as far away from him as possible, but still kill him. Same thing with the master. Well, but also... A crossbow is a lot easier to use than trying to throw an exact yep. knife or a stake. Um, so it it's one of those things where it's like she's choosing weapons that can still get the job done, but will at least help her out a bit. Oh, I was going to say when Giles goes after Angel in Passion, he brings a crossbow. Um, yep. You know, because uh, like what Leo was saying, this is a weapon that anybody can use, even if you don't have like super strength. And she puts her bag in a central location. She probably puts the stuff inside of her pockets and then is like, okay, I can come back. And you see her at one point when Kralik's chasing her, she runs by and grabs something out of the bag. So it's like she is strategic about this. She knows what she's doing. The way that this is shot, it feels like one long continuous shot, even though it's not. The way that they've lit it and everything too, oh, I can I can watch this entire whole scene endlessly and possibly pick up new things every time it's mm-hmm. very well done um and then quentin is just like his demeanor is just very much he doesn't care like everything is going crazy and the fact that he knew that buffy was there and walked in and then left 100 percent. this guy's trying to kill her yep and he knows that his guys have died he's like whatever i don't really care and then and giles is like this is out of control and travis mm-hmm. like it changes nothing because he doesn't care well because ultimately he wants her dead yeah, <laughs> yeah. he doesn't care uh, i think firmly that the council wants her dead and they're they're sending um, Quentin to go and like take care of it you know and it's gotta be because I think Faith has gotta be another aspect of this too they're like crap we now have two slayers this slayer has obviously died once which has brought another one what happens if she dies again and gets resurrected we're starting to lose control now that we have multiple slayers like I think there's a reason and I think it's also I think it's also an issue it's like divide and conquer. Like I think the idea that they see the two slayers like in the same area under the same watcher and they're both like they both at least are getting along and stuff. It's like I think that's a little scary for them because it's like they're losing some of their power. Giles kind of says, interestingly, I don't give a rat's ass about the council's orders. There will be no test. And then he's like, well, the test has already begun. I just wrote down "screw the council" at that point. Like, Seriously, <laughs> like they don't 100%. get a they don't get a say anymore. <laughs> no, no, yeah, we hate them. And then back at the boarding house, Buffy's walking around trying to be hidden, trying not to be seen. Um, and then she's being resourceful. She pushes down the bookshelf on him, and then she runs into the other room. And we hear a hide and see. Oh my gosh! With the clicking, mm-hmm. oh! And then she grabs the cross out. This is iconic. Holds it up because that's her only line of defense. And it's uh-huh. like, oh yeah, we haven't seen crosses in a while. The gang is usually the people who hold up the crosses when they're helping her right. patrol because, like Leah said, that's their line of defense. Same thing with like holy water and things like that. And then he grabs it, and then. pulls it lower and lower which you're just like oh god no yeah it's also scary because like her one weapon that she was gonna use Mm -hmm. he's not even like scared of and then she runs she runs into the room with um the dead body 
chases her up the stairs. We have that whole thing where he's like trying to grab her. I love that. He drags her down. She hits her head on like the stairs. And I love how she grabs one of like the pieces of wood and starts like like trying to stake him. Mm Mm-hmm. And then she goes into the room with the all the Polaroids. And I love how they shot that because, I mean, they definitely could have done a cut, but you can hear her breathing. So you see her enter the room, the, the lights go out, and then it's like a full four or five seconds of like just dark as the camera rotates and you hear yep. her breathing. And then the light switch turning on, the way it's shot is just so good. So she, they, she runs back into the hallway and then he catches up to her. And then he gets a massive headache and, and screams. So she grabs the pills and then runs across the hallway down the laundry chute and then finds Joyce downstairs. Which I, I was like, wow, what an athletic dive. She just like swan dives in the yeah. laundry chute. And I'm like, dang, girl, you don't even have your vampire powers. <laughs> Dude, oh, I also thought about it and I was like, don't most laundry chutes just go straight to the floor? I know, like, she'd hit her She's head. lucky that she didn't like face plant right into cement. I mean, it's that or it's being drained by a sadistic vampire. That's true. Yeah, so I, I mean, I take the too. laundry chute. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At least it's at your own will. Like if, if you're going to die, yes. at least you killed yourself, not Zachary, you know? Yeah, not Zachary. <laughs> um, I love how like she's really struggling trying to like get Joyce out of the ropes just because they're so tight. And then Buffy kind of like out of a distraction runs in front of him. He throws her aside. Actually, um, during that time, I thought that was actually really funny. The way she like tries to sneak behind him, she's like, oh, "Don't mind me." Like, and I know she's like kind of uh, yeah. trying to get caught. Um, right. But it's just it's just uh-huh. like the least sneaky sneak of all time. <laughs> <laughs> right, and she was trying to she was trying to appear sneaky with while having him see her, which it's just funny when you don't know what's happening because you're like, wait, Buffy, why are you just casually yeah. walking next to him? When <laughs> yeah, exactly, it she was very had to funny. Have thought really fast though because she could have taken that time to try and get Joyce like loose, but instead she was she had to think really fast and was like, oh, let me grab this holy water because I know if he's taking pills, he has to drink the water. Like it was really quick of her. She says her iconic, if I was at full Slayer power, I'd be punning right about now. And then he burns up from the inside out. And then Giles comes in and stakes whatever the other dude's name is, Blair. And then this whole library scene, Quentin comes in and says how he's very pleased with Buffy. Like strength or no, I probably would have punched that guy. Uh, but I was about to say, it, <laughs> I would just wail on that fool. If I can take a like a vampire who's crazy, I can take some old fart who's never yeah, left his literally. office. Yeah, <laughs> literally. Exactly. Like, did you not just see what, how I killed him? You know, I still have the crossbow. I love the twist that, that Travers is like, um, she passed, you didn't. Like, mm-hmm. this chrysomentum is just as much for you as it is for her. And I was like, ah, there it is. There it is. Mm-hmm. You, Giles is a threat to them as well. Anybody who steps out of the usual way of doing things is a threat to them. He mentions that Giles is fired because he has a father's, he has a father's love, love for the child. And that is useless to the cause. Okay. Boo. What is useful? <laughs> but he's like, congratulations again. She's like, bite me. <laughs> like, yes, and the whole, yes, girl. well, colorful girl. Oh, he's so dismissive. Like, this mm-hmm. guy is so cold. I just, I kind of wish that a vamp had eaten him. And then Giles mends to her wound. I love that. I love that moment. Yeah, he does kind of redeem himself at least a little bit in the end. I think it's different because, A, he 
changes his behavior. He doesn't go through with it. He tells Buffy. And, like, B, he actively sacrifices his job for Buffy. So it's like, like, he never, we never see him fully, like, apologize to Buffy. But it's like, he does so many stuff to show that he's sorry and that to make up for what he did. Well, he does apologize to her. He said, I'm so sorry. And then he was talking about how um, how he's going to do everything in his power to fix it and stuff. And then he actively yeah. puts his own life on the line. Like, he mm-hmm. do definitely makes up for it. I mean, it may not be over completely in this episode, but it's – Buffy knows that he does those things because he cares for her, even though mm-hmm. it was wrong. But I think you know? also having a third-party person affirm – Buffy's feelings of like a daughter, father, daughter love um, during the episode because the whole time she's like needing his affirmation, wanting to go to the ice station with him, like needing that like affirmation from him. And then to get that from a third party who views and sees that in them was just like what Buffy needed in that moment. And then to see Giles like have repercussions because he loves Buffy. Uh, I love this last scene. You know, they're talking about, you know, how mm-hmm. clever Buffy was and Willow can't get over the fact that Giles is fired. Um, and then Xander's over there like, give you a hand with that little lady with the peanut butter jar. Oh, the Ted yeah. line. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then he's like, admit it, sometimes you just need a big strong and then he can't. And then he's like, Will, <laughs> you want to give me a hand? <laughs> It's like, ah, yes, be humble, Cinder. <laughs> well, and then that little, like, like comment that Buffy makes is like, I kept it my birthday tradition of gut-wrenching misery and horror. I'm like, oh, poor Buffy. Oh, my gosh. This poor girl can't catch a break. But, ah, uh, episode is a banger from beginning to end. Absolutely love it. I, I like, seriously want to go watch it again. I feel like there's so many little moments, and, yeah, it's just, it's excellent. Thanks, David, for being a part of this. It's always really fun having you around. And next week, he's going to be here for our spoiler section, which is also going to be really, really fun. There's going to be a lot to talk about, obviously, with the Watchers Council finally being revealed. So definitely come back for that. You guys can find us on Instagram, TikTok, at Becoming Buffy Podcast. You can email us at becomingbuffypodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you guys, your thoughts on this episode. I know for a lot of people, Helpless is one of those that's very hard to watch because of this the strain it puts on Buffy and Giles' relationship. Um, even though people see it as a good episode, they just can't watch it because it's just too hard. But I want to know, do you guys love it? Do you hate it? Is it one that's hard for you to watch? I'm curious. There is a wrong answer in that. There is a wrong wrong answer. As always, guys, thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time.